I'm Sandy Freeman. I am uh, one of Eric King's legal counsels. And hi, I'm Josh Davidson, uh, abolitionist and member of Eric King's support crew and also a member of the Certain Days Freedom for Political Prisoners calendar. Well, let's talk about what's going on with Eric's case and just Eric in general right now. Sure. Um, well, the Eric is currently in the ADX. I think he, last year around this very time, he had a criminal trial. It was four grueling days of trial with all manner of harassment by the Bureau of Prisons throughout trial. And um, he was acquitted. And right after that, then um, they sent him on another round of diesel therapy and ultimately sent him to the Supermax here in the mountains of Colorado. So um, he's there, but we are getting ready to bring him home. And he's, I mean, he's keeping it up. Eric's a fighter and, uh, you know, he can see himself coming out and I know is, is ready to to come home. Talk about the situation with where he was sent after the trial, because, uh, I think for those of us on the outside, it was a little hard to understand. There was a lot of, you know, there was calling campaigns. There was a fear that they were going to send him to a really horrible place. I mean, you know, obviously any prison is a horrible place, but, you know, where did he end up? Like explain that whole ordeal, like post the trial, you know, he won, obviously I think there was a fear that they were going to like retaliate against him because they looked so bad and he won. Sure. Um, you know, before the trial, uh, Eric was sent diesel therapy all around the country to some of them sort of most notorious spots, including Leavenworth McCreary and USP Robert E. Lee in Virginia and then he came back to Colorado for the trial, there was definitely a concern about retaliation and I think well-placed because after the trial was over, they then put him back on the road. They sent him to Grady County, um, but then to USP Atlanta and then back to Robert E. Lee um, Penitentiary in Virginia where he was during the ADX approval process um, for placement in the Supermax, um, just called the is the ADX here in in Florence, and so they they had him up in there um, on communication restrictions, and then um, sent him back to Colorado, and he is now in one of the most notorious prisons in the world. I think as an act of um, ultimate retaliation for fighting back and winning multiple times. Is that, I mean, is that normal? I mean, because I think the assumption is that he would be preparing to get out. You know, they would be less concerned with him. Right. It's, it's not normal. It's absolutely abnormal, even for the notoriously terrible um, Bureau of Prisons but it is a level of retaliation and repression, um, even post-trial, that is, I 
it's astounding, really. Um, and what we have done is, is the legal team and with Eric, because it is so unusual, sort of, you know, begs the question as to how can the Bureau of Prisons do this? How can they manipulate his security classifications? He was convicted of a nonviolent offense in from the, um, the 2014 um, acts in Kansas City. How is it that he can be in the most notorious prison in the United States, um, you know, where you have sort of Ted Kaczynski was housed there, Zokar Sharnayev, a lot of these folks who've been convicted of terrorism offenses, El Chapo is in there. It's a notorious spot. So how is it that Eric ended up there? And um, it is that the Bureau of Prisons has declared themselves to be um, sort of exempt from having to follow the law when it comes to the supermax, and we're really taking that on. And Eric, I think, is is really mindful of everybody who's in there and having to deal with this, as it's um, reportedly worse than Guantanamo. Well, Josh, last time we had you on, we actually were able to speak to Eric as well. Uh, how has he been? How has he been dealing with this uh, since he's since the trial? Um, I would say abnormally well, really. He's able to communicate with people now, which is a step up from the years of solitary confinement um, and, and mail bans that he's faced previously. So he is able to communicate with people. He's able to get books. He's able to, at least now, I believe he's in a step-down unit at the ADX, so he's able to communicate with other people that are incarcerated alongside him. And he's looking forward to getting out. He's looking forward to being with his family, to meeting so many of his, of his supporters that he has never actually met face-to-face, myself included, um, and to just getting on with his life. I know he has a lot of plans for, for ways to stay involved and to you know, continue the struggle. So let's talk about Eric getting out. When is he supposed to be released? In December of this year? Yeah, that's his final out date. Uh, they've extended his sentence and deducted good time. And so we're trying to get him out as soon as possible. But yeah, December is his final out date. We really want everybody to be, um, you know, putting prayers and hopes and wishes out there and uh, bringing him home before that December date. He needs to be home now. When you say that they extended his sentence and w- what does that mean exactly? Um, yeah, sorry. It's, he has been throughout the years of all of the solitary confinement communication restrictions. They've also hit him with an inordinate number of, of disciplinary sanctions. Um, a lot of it for minor petty free speech stuff, um, that was in retaliation for Eric being Eric. And they have used that process to both up his security level and to extend his sentence and reduce his good time. And so part of what we're doing, telling the courts right now is, you know, like he needs to be out. He needs to come home. Do you think that would happen or? I mean, I, I do, I do. I'm bold enough to be a lawyer, I guess. <laughs> and so we are um, going to be pushing for that because that's what should happen. And he should definitely not be, <laughs> Uh, spending his final days in the Supermax. Awesome. Well, let's talk about the fundraiser. There's a crowdfunding campaign to support Eric when he gets out. Talk about it. Yeah, it's been up for a few weeks now, and it's already getting quite a bit of money and quite a bit of uh, attention. Obviously, we, it needs more uh, needs more donations. 
but we'll be sure to include a link here. Uh, but it's basically for him to adjust to getting out of prison, for him to, you know, move on from the past 10 years of his life and try and build something better with his family. Uh, I know he's looking to get a job. He wants to get a computer. So a lot of these things will include, will, will have costs that he will need help with until he's able to make ends meet. Will he have any stipulations on his release in terms of interacting with political movements or anything? He shouldn't. Um, and I, there are no first amendment restrictions on, on what he can say and, and who can he can affiliate with. There are like the regular conditions that are applied to everybody, um, about non-association with felons, um, people who are sort of under active investigation, but, um, you know, we really are excited for him to get out and to be able to, you know, be telling the story. And I think, you know, he, does wants to do so much support for other prisoners is really where, where his focus is. And, um, you know, seeing that nobody has to go through this ever again. Awesome. Yeah. Do you want to speak more to that? I don't know how much you can share, but any of his, uh, post-release plans, uh, Josh, you're mentioning that you're working on a book. Yeah. Yeah. He and I have been working on a book for a few years, which should be coming out, uh, through AK press in December around the time that he's released. And it's really a, a collection, an homage to, to political prisoners and to the struggles that they've endured. Uh, it's a collection of interviews with about 30 to 40 current or former political prisoners about how they survived inside and how they maintained the struggle. Um, he's really looking forward to promoting that and to traveling around, hopefully, you know, or at least doing Zoom events related to that. I know he's really proud of it. Uh, he's also interested, I know, in getting union work whether that's plumbing or electrician work or something like that. And he's also mentioned a lot of interest in doing a podcast and just kind of about his life, about the lives of political prisoners and the things he's experienced and the people he's met along the way. Well, we would definitely love to have him (laughs) obviously on this show whenever he gets out, uh, whenever he has time, of course. Uh, But that's amazing. You know, I'm just curious, you know, you all spent so much time working on this, you know, this is obviously not over, but we can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, do you have any major reflections or I guess lessons learned from this thing? This has just been such a roller coaster. Sandy, you want to take that one? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's still going. Like it's still, you know, it the struggle continues and everybody who's ever had to deal with getting out and, you know, trying to like adjust your life after it's been, you know, interrupted by arrest and prosecution. I mean, it, it is difficult no matter what. Eric is not quiet. Um, he never has been and he never will be. And they have made it as hard as possible um, for him, even here until what should be pre-release planning and, you know, the, the end of his sentence, they are holding him in one of the most notorious prisons, you know, in the middle of Colorado's Gulag Archipelago. Um, The struggle really continues. I, you know, it's just when we, we can win when we fight back, you know, when, when you have broad, deep support of, of community, you know, continuing to raise his voice, even at great risk to himself. And I mean, he's fought back in the closet and in the court, like, you know, wherever they put him, (laughs) he fights back and he wins and he wins. And I think it is a testament to 
um, the deep support and love that he has been surrounded with um, by, you know, people everywhere throughout throughout the years that like we've been able to to all get to this point. And I know he just really right now wants to be home with the family and that he can see it happening um, is something really the people did. Uh, I'll just throw a shout out for the certain days calendar that the, we are in a call that we have our call out now and we're looking for submissions until May day of art and uh, essays for the 2024 calendar. I feel like we don't actually talk about this enough. If you're interested in becoming an attorney and in doing this work, what advice would you give people listening to this? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, I, cause we need more people doing it. Right. And I feel we like we do. don't actually have that conversation of like, Hey, more people should probably do this. Thank you. No, I, um, and I, I, I agree that, that we do. I'm not, um, with the, the CLDC, oh, sorry. um, anymore. No, it's, I mean, it's cool. It's like, we, you know, we team up, we pass the baton, like actually, what does sustainable movement look like and what does that look like for us as lawyers um, or in whatever piece of things that we hold? I, I think um, I'm down to talk about like what, you know, how do, how do we create like good lawyers of conscience who, who want to get in there and um, you know, understand that like, this is, is not, like something that we can waltz in and out of, like, this is all of us. Like we, you know, when we're talking about what it means to, to do um, this work and especially when it, what does it mean to develop relationships with people who are in prison? Um, I, I think we definitely need more, more lawyers, more folks, you know? Um, and I, I really appreciate certain days and I mean, everything that this, it, it takes all of us, um, you know, for people who want to be lawyers, I'd say, uh, talk to, talk to people who are lawyers and it's okay to, to really only want to be around lawyers who you respect and, and feel like you can trust. We shouldn't have to compromise ourselves or our values in order to, um, you know, to do the work where we are called to do it.
I'm Peyton. I use he and they pronouns. And I'm Leah, and I use they, them pronouns. And we're the directors of an independent documentary series called The Elements of Mutual Aid. It's a four-part documentary series that explores the origins, structures, healing ways, and logistics of mutual aid-based organizing in North America. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to, to dive into that. So why make a film about mutual aid, first of all? What pushed you to do that? Um, yeah, we um, first off just felt like we had a really like deep craving for more visual media. Um, we were doing a lot of film screenings in our community of you know, documentaries on the Zapatistas and folks in Rojava and um, a number of other different uh, groups that are organizing and um, just felt like we really wanted more visual media that touched on what mutual aid could look like in the liberatory sense and um, inspired more conversations around um, different groups practicing that. Um, so there was, there was that um, desire to see more of that media, to be able to share it uh, in a really accessible way. And then there was also, you know, we've been part of the Mutual Aid Disaster Relief Network and gone on um, workshop tours and um, talked, had like a lot of conversations with different communities during the COVID pandemic at the beginning of it. During 2020, I was on the phone with a number of different uh, groups and organizations that were like just starting and getting a grasp of what mutual aid uh, work looked like for them, how to like make decisions collectively together, and to be able to like share some more of those conversations um, and like inspire uh, and like cross pollinate ideas um, and deepen conversations around what this work could look like. Um, I think that Leah just did a great job explaining, you know, why we're doing this. We were both. Uh, on the workshop tour for mutual aid disaster relief back in 2018. And that's, that's about when the idea for this project got started. Um, we were thinking about what it would look like to use the elements. So each of the different chapters, fire, earth, water, and air are drawing on a different element. Um, and so, uh, we think that using that as like a storytelling device roots it in, uh, the history and legacy of mutual aid. That's, you know, before the term, uh, was generated. Um, I'm a black anarchist myself. And so drawing from black anarchistic traditions, I can follow my roots back to the continent. Um, indigenous people here in North America can as well as people in South America and, uh, Asia and all, all parts of the world. Um, and so thinking about rooting the storytelling that we're uh, trying to do here of capturing these, uh, you know, different lessons learned through the movement through mutual aid, I, we felt was really important. And not only just like telling stories that inspire, uh, I think that a lot of documentary ends up getting kind of pigeonholed in this like really reductive inspiration sort of narrative um, and maybe has a call to action that's like call your senator at the end. Um, but what we really wanted was to, across the four chapters, dive into the l structures of mutual aid in a way that helps people visualize what it actually looks like um, and how to participate in it specifically. Um, so this is more or less a, an educational tool um, than just like a, a period piece um, for people to get ex excited about, you know, or inspired by. You all mentioned going on tour with Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, and that's been such an inspirational project for so many people. I'm curious, you know, what are, what are your big takeaways uh, since the tour? How have things 
mm. grown or changed? Yeah, um, obviously, since George was killed and the pandemic started, there was the confluence of the movements for mutual aid and abolition. And those terms and the different like strategies and tactics um, within those movements became really popular. Um, and that's not something that we anticipated back in 2018 um, or even at the very beginning of 2020. You know, we were originally set out to film in 2020. Um, we had all of our like money saved. We've self-funded this project. We had our, our route planned. Uh, we were like contacting people to start filming. And then the pandemic happened and then George got killed. And so everything just kind of got flipped uh, upside down at that moment. And our analysis has shifted. We've seen other people's analysis shift about mutual aid infrastructure and the viability of mutual aid and sort of like seeing limitations of what mutual aid can be defined as and how it's practiced start to form. Um, I think that a lot of people have a touch point with mutual aid since 2020 of it being basically food, not bombs. And that isn't, I think, a bad thing. But food distribution or cash redistribution um, through like Instagram uh, isn't the limitation of mutual aid, right? Like we can see mutual aid going so much farther and it has to go so much farther than just like simple uh, redistribution efforts, which are important um, and a form of direct aid. So I think like the differentiation between direct aid and mutual aid um, and seeing those things as complementary rather than like adversarial is, is really important. Uh, that it, once again, like isn't to diminish uh, direct aid at all. Um, but recognizing that like uh, mutual aid networks having strong interrelational long-term uh, structures that are being built out of this ethic and practice of radical anti-authoritarian mutual aid is really important. Something that we really wanna highlight in the film is that uh, it's not just us, it's not just anarchists that are practicing mutual aid, um, but mutual aid has existed for a really long time, um, obviously since pre-colonial time, um, but also like the police have traditions of mutual aid. Um, they have mutual aid societies where they take care of their sick and um, they have uh, mutual aid agreements between their precincts where they support each other in times where an individual department doesn't have enough resources to be able to respond to whatever the hell the cops are responding to, um, whether it's a natural disaster or a active shooter or whatever. Um, and so uh, recognizing that mutual aid isn't just our purview and that mutual aid isn't inherently revolutionary is really important. And I also think that like there's a lot of communist critique of mutual aid, or there was at, at the offset of the pandemic. There was a lot of communiques being written about how mutual aid was basically charity with a circle A, you know, drawn on it. Um, and I, th I think that there's a reductiveness in that analysis as well. Um, so I think like what we're trying to do with this film is really flesh out um, like where mutual aid comes from, who uses it, and what we mean as anarchists and anti-authoritarians when we're talking about building long-term community infrastructure. I, to answer your question more directly, I think we've seen a lot of people build really amazing projects. Um, some of those are featured in the film and others, uh, just because of time, we haven't been able to add into the film. We're just driving all across the country trying to you know, talk to who we can. And also a lot of people are burnt out and tired because of 2020 and, and the last three years of responding to this pandemic. And so um, people are, you know, sort of mounting against, you know, uh, you know, this burnout and also a lack of like long form mutual aid traditions 
in this country. Um, I think that's that's just my own personal take is that, um, you know, traditions of mutual aid have been crushed really intentionally by white supremacy in the state and by capital. And so people have been moved into, you know, having to form organizations and, and relearn how to build mutual aid infrastructures. And you slap politics on top of that with socialism and you know, leftism and all of these kind of things. And, and it becomes really convoluted, I think, really quickly, um, what mutual aid really means. And, and it kind of gets lost how inherently human mutual aid is and, and what it really means to be building towards collective autonomy um, without necessarily like slapping a big red flag on top of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think also... Um in, in terms of defining what a liberatory mutual aid means for us and for people that we're organizing closely with, um, really contextualizing this term that gets thrown around like by people from like Obama and AOC to everybody else um, within like other values that it implies when we actually take it to its logical conclusions of like being our most human together. Um, and that like, like, providing food and redistributing resources is like complicated enough of all the logistics of it. Um, But then also, um, you know, figuring out what more mutual relationships with each other can look like and uh, making decisions together is like incredibly complicated and requires a lot of experimenting with. And um, we've gotten to see a lot of that since 2020 which is really exciting. And I think folks are really craving a lot more, um, yeah, deepening of conversations for for what that can look like and just uh, showing off of different experiments that are happening mm-hmm. um, so that people can learn from each other and reference those. Mm-hmm. What did people kind of get wrong and mm-hmm. what did we get right over the past couple of years in terms of mutual aid organizing, would you both say? Sure. Yeah, I can, I can start with just like a really soft critique of some of the things that we've seen. And I, th- I don't think it's just like within mutual aid either. Um, I think it's mutual aid is just like one singular facet of, you know, the revolutionary, you know, potential that we have. Um, it's, it's a critical component, but it's not revolution in and of itself. Uh, I think that's, that's probably the starting point is a lot of people started mutual aid groups in 2020 um, because it was, it was a necessary thing. Um, and the term became really popularized. And so a lot of these groups, um, you know, I think had, and maybe some still have like an analysis that mutual aid is like inherently radical or inherently, inherently revolutionary. And so I think like digging back the history of mutual aid, you know, Peter Kropotkin, for instance, didn't coin the term. He popularized and politicized it. Um, but Kropotkin didn't come up with mutual aid. Um, as a concept himself, or as like a term, he didn't make that word, he didn't form those words together. Um, You know, mutual aid societies existed in Europe as like guilds and friendly societies and fraternities, and they were called mutual aid societies since like the 1800s. So like thinking about like the history of mutual aid, not beginning as like inherently political in the sense that we understand politicization. Um, And like, once again, recognizing that the cops do mutual aid, is really, really critical, I think, for understanding, like, what we mean when we say mutual aid. And I think maybe that, like, self-reflective introspection is maybe something that a lot of people haven't had the time to do or haven't done. And I think that that's kind of limiting um, to just sort of assume that because we call something mutual aid that it's going to be super rad. Um, 
and then the other thing is that like because mutual aid is is such a fluid term uh, a lot of like nonprofits have really jumped on that like leah just mentioned a second ago uh alexandria ocasio cortez did a, a workshop uh, at the really beginning of the pandemic um, on mutual aid and uh, was like referencing like Dean Spade's work um, and at the same time was like talking about mutual aid as being a safe gap between uh, people responding to a crisis and kind of holding over until the state could come in and, and do quote unquote the state's job, right? Um, and so we see these sort of like co-optations and professionalizations and a lot of groups like working towards becoming nonprofits um, and then like not having like the full equipment to be able to like handle um, like what becoming a nonprofit means and then like, you know, sort of adopting professionalization and, um, you know, the sort of like state procedure that the nonprofit industrial complex is forces upon people working for grant money, trying to maintain the organization, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And so like, I think those are the things that I've seen is like, uh, you know, people having a really um, sometimes a historical um, understanding of mutual aid and then like attempting to try to like formalize their organization so much to the point that they become like kind of ineffective or turned into something that we might not want to see if we're talking about like radical alternatives to the state and capital. And I'll just add on briefly um, that also um, having like a lack of like, uh, like relational um, priority in groups and, and focusing primarily on uh, moving around resources is something that I think we saw a lot of, um, especially since 2020, and um, kind of just blurs the concept of like mutuality um, in the in the concept of, of us being more human with each other and breaking down these um, power dynamics between us. So um, yeah, yeah, building relationship and building like openings and opportunities for more people to participate with their own power and resources and wisdom through um, whatever projects are going on is something that I'm always excited to see more and more of um, and for us to like move away from understanding this is just like, okay, we're going to hustle as hard as we can and like get as many plates of food or uh, whatever the, the resource is out to people. And then like on a positive note, we have seen like and we've been able to meet with and record um, some amazing groups like Reclaiming Our Homes, for instance, in Los Angeles, who, uh, without getting completely into their history, were are a group of um, formerly houseless people, uh, mostly uh, Latinx uh, people with families and elderly people um, who uh identified the crisis of housing right now as a, a homeless apocalypse uh, is what they call it and um when 2020 happened and the pandemic happened um they worked with other pre-existing uh networks of people like the east side cafe um, and other people that were in the area in los angeles that had been mounting a program for a long time thinking about how do we reclaim homes how do we take housing back into the hounds of the people um, and then and the pandemic offered like a sort of, uh, you know, spark um, for people to be able to pounce on a moment and basically strong arm the state into allowing them to occupy houses indefinitely. They broke into homes, had the support of their community behind them, had really great media, had really great um, 24 hour 
uh, protection outside of the houses uh, by way of like volunteers coming and um, keeping cop watch um, uh, on a regular basis, people bringing food, um, the whole community coming into support by way of like uh, if houses needed to have their plumbing turned back on because these were vacant houses that the state owned um, for like decades and were just letting rot. Um, so people broke into them and, and let themselves in and uh, challenged the state on the basis of the stay at home order um, because we had all gotten that. And so uh, they were like, well, we're houseless. We don't have homes to stay in. So we're going to break into these houses and take them and, and you can't stop us because we're, we're going to survive and we have children and we're elderly and we're vulnerable and we need homes too. And so it wasn't as clean as the state folding over and saying, okay, it was a fight. And to sustain that fight, um, the whole community came out together and, and supported them and continues to to this day. Um, the Reclaiming Our Homes movement is in full effect and is still going on. And it was a real pleasure to be able to see uh, not just this one group, not just a few charismatic individuals, but a whole community network and ecosystem of people supporting uh, this larger vision of housing justice for all. So mutual aid has like really radical potentials beyond likely it was just saying just like resource distribution. Like it's it's also like taking housing back and prying it out of the hands of capitalists. That's also mutual aid. Yeah, let's talk more about some of the amazing folks that you got a chance to speak to for the film. You mentioned, of course, Reclaiming Our Homes, which is uh, based out of sort of Southern California. They're taking over uh, homes that belong to, quote unquote, Caltrans uh, that have sat there for decades. Uh, we've written, done a couple articles on it. Um, but yeah, talk about some other uh, projects that are really inspiring uh, you all that you captured on film. Uh, yeah, we have quite a few. There's going to be about three or four groups in each one of these hour-long um, segments of the series. Um, so we have quite a, a good list and have gotten to meet some really amazing people and projects. Uh, we got to go to Puerto Rico, Porican, to visit the mutual aid centers there, the Centros de Apoyo Mutuo. Um, and we visited two or three of those um, and are really inspired by their also reclaiming of uh, vacant schools that were shut down through austerity measures to provide like a variety of different um, uh, needs for their community. Um, we've also interviewed uh, Yanawana Herbalarios in um, San Antonio, so-called San Antonio, Texas. Um, and that's, they're doing a really cool um, medic healer program for young BIPOC, uh, like post high school uh, age kids. Um, and it's like a four year um super committed program where kids are learning like disaster response and like action camp skills and medicking. And it's quite amazing. Um, we filmed arm the girls out in Oakland, um, which is a group of trans, uh, femmes and women, um, and folks in the LGBTQ plus community who are working on self-defense in their community. Uh, we went to like a range day with them where, um, some of the women got to shoot guns for the first time. That was pretty awesome to film. Uh, we've been down to Tijuana and met up with Contraviento y Marea, um, which is a, also an amazing project um, founded by migrants and run by migrants and um, run like explicitly as an anarchist project with like deeply horizontal values. Um, and we've there's there's a there's a lot more. We've interviewed mutual aid disaster relief, just seeds, um, the OVAS in LA also. 
Quintana Mutual Aid in so-called Flagstaff. Um, and then we've interviewed um, some indi- individuals as well who have um, who are kind of serving as like narrators um, and different uh, voices for the film, including Jessica Gordon-Nemhard, Klee uh, Ali, and a few others. Just to kind of go back to another thing you said, you mentioned like AOC, you know, tweeting out uh, Kapakan quotes and all that stuff. You know, how, how do you see that? Do you see that as a success? You know, like things have gotten to the point where liberals are recuperating us. It it does seem uh, it's interesting whenever the rest of the left tries to kind of like uh, catch up with the autonomous movements, mm-hmm. uh, or is that or is that a bad sign that they're attempting mm-hmm. to recuperate? And we need to cal- recalibrate, or is it both those things? I mean, my my like gut reaction is that it's probably both. I think a lot of people have said that um, it's a good thing, and you know. I've been in the camp that says it's a bad thing. Um, I watched the uh, training that AOC did with Mariam Kaba, which still to this day kind of blows my mind that the two of them work together. I'd really love to talk with Mariam Kaba and understand why she did that. Um, Mutual Aid Disaster Relief was asked to participate in that workshop that AOC was leading and, and declined it. Um, for pretty obvious reasons. Oh, um, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> uh, I just learned that actually the other day. So it's, it's yeah, it was, it was, How it was, did you all respond like it that? was Jimmy. Jimmy, Jimmy said no. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, respectfully, of course, but, oh, um, <laughs> so but I mean, respect. it's, respect. it's, yeah, I mean, it, it's outside our values. I mean, and that's pretty abundantly clear. So for Mariam Kaba to like, to do this, I think I would love to hear her perspective because I think she probably sits in the camp of it's a good thing, right? Like more people getting exposed to this is a good thing. Um, but I also, you know, argue that I think that when liberals like AOC and the squad are adopting this radical language and doing their fake arrests, you know, and all of this kind of stuff that they're famous for, um, it sort of creates a, you know, atmosphere where things become diluted. Um, and when we're talking about like real deal, first line of, you know, defense or frontline, you know, actions, um, and those things are getting diluted and professionalized and turned into, you know, academic, you know, research fodder, I think it becomes like really difficult then to build traction on the ground. Um, and it sort of alienates these movements from people that are, you know, on the ground doing it most. Uh, I'm thinking about the aunties and the people that are like in the trenches actually doing this work on the day-to-day basis and might not even be calling it mutual aid, might, might not even know what mutual aid is. Um, and I think that the farther that the movement gets, you know, pushed in that direction, the farther away it is from people on the ground that need to be connected to it most. Yeah, and I think it's just really essential that we like stake out our vision for like what we do this for. Are we are we participating in it as something like it, the the example of Reclaim Our Homes that Peyton was talking about? Is it an ecosystem of resistance against state powers that have no intention of like doing their job to um, you know provide social services because that's not their actual job, um, or you know, are we doing it to um, build something that's alternative? And I, I think that's another thing to go back earlier to why we're making this film. I think um, there's just a lot of uh, documentaries that like show problems, a lot of like poverty porn um, and um, don't show power, like communities that are powerful together that are creating an active resistance and providing meaningful solutions 
to the issues that these systems of power have wrought upon us. So, um, yeah, just just being clear about that, and it's it's hard to be clear about um, how to per- how to create boundaries around the work that we're doing when we also have to like get resources for that, and that's another thing we want to. Um, be talking about in the film and have some interviews already about um, and talking with different groups who like some of them have nonprofit status, some of them don't. What are the you know pitfalls and benefits of that? Um, we've tried to keep the project as grassroots as possible and interview groups that are um, like less formalized. Um, but yeah, anyway, just just really. Um, supporting people doing this uh, on their own terms um, while they navigate the complexities of figuring out how to get resources. What do you do when uh, you have the Red Cross or the state or whoever offering you resources and how do you not get folded into uh, their business as usual to bring things back to a status quo? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking about some of the amazing projects that we've had a chance to speak to and just the, the infrastructure being built has always been really inspiring. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I think one of the things you brought up, you know, people burning out and just the the massive amount of work it takes. I'm curious, you know, in the course of this project, like, how did you see people address that? <sighs> That's a difficult one. Um, a lot of projects, um, we talk about this often, you know, we're 24 hours on this project a day. Um, we like fall asleep talking about it sometimes. We try not to. Um, and uh when we're processing this that is something that we talk about something that i've like said before is um, i really wish that we could have seen a lot of these groups back in 2020 um to have like a scope of what they looked like then and what they look like now Uh, i think that some groups have like gained momentum and gained um you know capacity and i think that others have you know slowly lost their sort of like boom and bust interest of volunteer base um, like at the very beginning, a lot of groups like put out, you know, requests for volunteers and got like a hundred plus people on these like big email lists and signal chats and all this kind of thing. And now are down to like a skeleton crew, um, of people because, you know, people went back to work and people have other stuff going on and people lost interest and all of this kind of thing. So, um, it's been really hard, uh, to sort of like see trends of that across the country, um, because ideally, right, mutual aid isn't just like a thing you do on the weekends. Um, like everybody in all of their houses should be doing this at like a fundamental level with food sharing and resource sharing um, and things like this. And so um, the things that we've seen that are, I think, for myself, the most exciting are when people have like really enmeshed like social relationships where they're able to process and like heal together. Um, I'm thinking of Arm the Girls in... Uh, Uh, Oakland Um, they have a really really beautiful way of like building space and placemaking as like queer people um, specifically like black and brown queer people like having places where they themselves are in control uh, through like music and DJing and graffiti art and you know like fashion I think is like really 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 desperately important Um, and a lot of the work is folded into those things as well. Um, and also they do like the really amazing self-defense. So they're a really multifaceted community of people, um, that are taking care of each other and like trying to look out for each other by way of like housing and food, you know, and like not everything that they're doing is like labeled mutual aid. 
you know? And I think like, that's really important um, to like understand like what we're politicizing and, and how we're politicizing things and like recognizing that we're just like human beings at the end of the day. Um, and we don't need like, you know, labels for every action that we take. I think that's, that's where I've seen people get real burnt is, you know, like the sort of like micromanaging of revolutionary activity with this like, you know, hardcore analysis that everything needs to like fit into the mold. And if it doesn't fit into the mold, it's like, you know, not helpful or not productive and, and things like that. So, yeah, I, I think that when I've seen people who are like able to immerse themselves in relationships of care, that's that's when things are really working well, even if it is just a few people. Well, do we want to talk about the fundraiser and also just like, uh, is there a release date for this or what can people look forward to? Yeah, so we're running a fundraiser uh, from March 18th until May Day. Uh, so that'll be launched. We've, um, yeah, really encourage folks to check that out. This is our second fundraiser. Our first one, we raised uh, about $4,000 and most of that went to stipends to be able to pay people for their time and um, light. And so, yeah, we're excited about, about this fundraiser. We also have um, a few ways that people could potentially um, support the project and, and get involved. It's just the two of us working on this. Um, and there's, uh, we'd really love for this to be um, collaborative in certain ways. So um, we're also looking for illustrators and uh, folks that make music that might uh, feel like their work is um, complementary to this project. And we'd love to be talking with folks that are doing that. Um, also, we've only been able to film so much. We've filmed for eight months last year, and we've got another three months to go this summer before we enter into full-time editing. Um, and we really um, have a lot of uh, care for not bringing the cameras out in um, places where we don't have like relationship and people don't know who we are, what we're doing. Um, we've written a bit on our website about the values that we're bringing to this project as anarchist filmmakers and community members. Um, and so because of that, we haven't been able to necessarily get a whole bunch of footage of people doing the thing all the time. Um, and so we want to encourage folks that might be interested over the next year while we're editing this project to um, send in any photos or recordings that they've taken consensually um, and are sharing consensually that, um, you know, might help illustrate and show people what this work really means um, so that it can be like a resource for a whole range of people. Um, we'll also be editing this next year. Um, and right now we're living out of a van and off food stamps. So um, we're trying to pour all our money and resources into this project. And if there's like a land project or a space that we could settle down in for a couple months um, or help out with while we edit, um, we're really interested in getting in touch with people like that. So, oh, and then and then one other thing for the um, fundraiser is that we are for folks that are connected to radical groups and businesses and collectives. Um, we're offering a um, in association credit. Um, it's the only crediting that we want to do at the end of the film, and we're not going to have like executive producers for some you know ethical stuff around like who has the most money and who gets their name on things. Um, but we do really want to like provide like a little mini directory of rad businesses 
or collectives and groups that support this project. So um, we'll have an option incentive for um, groups that are part of collectives like that that might want their credits at the end of the fundraiser. Um, and then finally, um, a bit further in advance when we finally have this thing done, hopefully next year sometime, uh, we're going to take it on a screening tour. And at that point, we're really going to be interested in doing um, as many screenings with uh, rad communities and doing discussions with folks as well. So um, we'll, we'll be making announcements about that. Um, and we have our Mastodon, Instagram, YouTube, PeerTube, website, mailing list. We're trying to hit the social media um, and get people connected to the project um, so that they can stay in touch with it and share our stuff. So, yeah. We've also worked in collaboration with a Just Seeds artist, Andrea Narno, uh, and they uh, have helped work on a really awesome graphic for a t-shirt that we'll be selling uh, during the fundraiser as well. So if you're looking for a new radical t-shirt that says all autonomous communities are beautiful, um, ACAB, uh, you can check that out on our website too, or and and the fundraiser uh, when when we launch. Enjoying this podcast and want to support it's going down so we can continue to crank out more content. It's easy. Go to itsgoingdown.org on your computer or your phone and click the tab at the top or the menu version on mobile that says support IGD, and then you can give us a one-time donation or sign up to donate monthly. Without your support, IGD doesn't continue. So if you appreciate our work, please consider supporting us. Again, go to itsgoingdown.org on your computer or your phone and click the tab at the top or on the menu version of mobile that says support IGD. And you can give us a one-time donation or sign up to donate monthly. You can also find the link in our Collectiva social media account and in the show notes of this podcast on itsgoingdown.org. And now... Back to the show. Okay, we are back for another week. Lots to talk about as always. We're going to start off by talking about TikTok. If you've been listening to the news, uh, Biden, like Trump, is going after the social media giant claiming that China is using it to spy on people. So it kind of remains to be seen what's going to happen. We're going to talk about it, what it means. Also, is this going to make a whole new generation of young folks that depend on it for entertainment and even news turned against Biden even more? I think that's an interesting question. And we're going to talk about a new wave of legislation that attempts to roll back uh, longstanding rules against child labor. Uh, they mm -hmm. don't want your kids to know about drag, but they want them to go to work. So. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about what that means and what that looks like. But yeah, let's just get into the TikTok thing. Like, so I guess maybe we should go back to Trump and compare that to what Biden is saying now. Is it the same stuff? Yeah. I mean, I think we even have to go further back to Huawei. So Huawei is, a I'm sure people are familiar with the name. Um, they make everything. But in the US, a lot of what they're known for is making networking equipment and specifically cellular networking equipment. And as part of the sort of early, like late Obama era, early Trump era kind of trade war with China stuff, uh, they banned Huawei equipment. And what they said was, well, Huawei is a Chinese company. The Chinese government requires the ability to access anything made in China 
Therefore, they can access all 5G towers, which was a very tenuous conclusion, right, at best. Then it moves on to TikTok, and the claim that Trump made and the claim Biden's making, it's exactly the same, is look at this company. They're sucking up a bunch of data, and the Chinese government has access to it because they're a Chinese company. And okay, fine. Uh, There's a lot of really... uh, sort of hypocritical parts to this, which I think are really important to talk about, which is first, what is TikTok doing, right? Um, Well, what they're doing is what every social media company does. They're sucking up user data, (laughs) right? Like they collect just as much user data as Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever. You know, they're not unique in that way. they sell that data to advertisers. They're not unique in that way. They give governments access to that data. And guess what? They're not unique in that way, right? Facebook gives plenty of governments access to data. So does Google, Twitter, so on, so on. Pretty routinely, pretty routinely. Why is there this obsession with this company? Yeah, exactly. I mean, every company is doing massive surveillance and massive data collection on its users. Yeah. And so there's this big question that, I mean, a lot of people in the tech industry and privacy circles and things have been asking is what's special about TikTok? So, okay. It's owned by ByteDance. Okay. That's what's special about it. ByteDance is a Chinese company. Now, what does that mean? Well, we don't know for sure in the West what that means. Uh, What we've been able to cobble together is that just like in Russia, if you're running a tech company then you may be asked to do things that would facilitate the government's use of your skills or technology. So, for example, if you run an information security testing company, you might be asked to maybe jump in on an operation for the People's Liberation Army or the GRU if you're in Russia, right? Um, If you run a company like ByteDance, you might be asked to allow the government access to that data, okay? But again, when the San Bernardino uh, shootings happened, right, and James Comey went all over the country trying to argue about the, quote, going dark problem, what he was functionally talking about was the government's inability to just willy-nilly, whenever they wanted to, without limitations, access data. And then at the same time, they complain about civil liberties in China, right? Civil liberties in China are a dumpster fire, right? But there's not a qualitative difference here between what something like Facebook is doing when they allow the FBI access to people's logs, to, to people's information, um, or, or what TikTok is doing when they allow the Chinese government access to that. The difference is what government it is, right? So that's not the real issue, right? The thing that they are talking about is not the actual real issue. If it was, that'd be a complete absurdity in this case. So we don't know if China is using TikTok to quote spy on us. They probably are, but like, what does that mean? Right. Right. So, uh, you know, we've talked about the intelligence gathering life cycle and the intelligence funnel on the show before. Um, and just to sort of refresh people's memory, uh, Within the the concept of the intelligence funnel is that um, intelligence agencies in the contemporary era 
collect far more data than they have the capacity to analyze. Okay. Um, and that that's across the board, right? Any, any sort of advanced military or intelligence apparatus has the ability to do this, right? Um, but they gather significantly more data than they can analyze, significantly more. And so they have to pare that down um, to really to really extreme degree, right? They have to cut out 80, 90, 95% of all the data they're collecting, right? Probably more. Also, a lot of these tech companies, I mean, it's presented as kind of like this nef- nefarious spying type thing. But I mean, we're literally giving them all this information. They're yeah. just basically collecting it and using it through analytics and all that other stuff to then repackage it either as ads or like something like Cambridge Analytica, which then use it to target people for political ads during the election and stuff like that. I mean, obviously that has like really bad ramifications. But it's not like the Chinese government is sitting there watching the internet traffic and activity of a billion users. There's no reason that A, they would do that. They gain nothing from that. And B, there's no way that they have the capacity for that. So the thing that the politicians are trying to convince people of, that Chinese intelligence agents are sitting in some ByteDance data center reading activity logs of American users is a fiction. Like that is an absolute, ridiculous, technologically impossible fiction. Um, It's an emotionally powerful one, though. And I think that that's the important part, right? That... The U.S. government gains a number of things by, you know, this narrative. First, they build political support. Look, they're doing something about China and both political parties as a way to sort of excuse the failures of capitalism have convinced a number of American workers that their jobs went to China when, in fact, their jobs got lost to robots, right? And capitalist profit motivation, a very small number of jobs, quote, went to China, Um but it allows politicians to play off that narrative, right? It's a really powerful narrative. It's been sort of running through, you know, trade union discourse for the last like 30 years. Um, and so it allows them to play on that. It also allows them to have leverage in a quote trade war with China. ByteDance makes a lot of money. What's fascinating about this whole situation is ByteDance has proposed a solution which would fix the non-existent problem. And what they said was, They will store all data in the United States. They will allow that data to be audited. They will allow access to that data to be audited. They will allow the U.S. government to have access to that data. And none of that data will ever touch Chinese soil. And the U.S. government still is forcing, trying to force them to sell the company, right? At that point, you know that the motivation is economic. That technologically solves the problem that the U.S. government is manufacturing as something that exists, right? Um, but that's not because that's not what it's about. It's about leverage in a trade war. And ByteDance is a huge, massive company that makes a ton of money internationally. Um, and so is a giant target in something like a tit for tat sort of trade conflict. Right. Um, but it also, it gives politicians this ability to sort of um, also kind of play around with this sort of, notion of engaging with technology from position of control. Um, One of the biggest absurdities of this entire conversation is they think that if they pull TikTok off of the app stores, that it's going to actually stop people from downloading TikTok, which it won't at all. They'll just get it from somewhere else. The problem is, is that 
they'll get it from places that are less safe. And a good amount of those downloads will be backdoored. So you're going to make a bunch of people put malware on their phones. Great job. It's not going to stop anyone from using TikTok, right? But again, that's not what it's about. Anyone that knows anything about technology and how social media works would tell you that the idea that you can ban an app is, is, is asinine. It's completely asinine. It makes no technological sense whatsoever. Um, so this is, this is a political move, right? Like this is a move that is there to allow Joe Biden to say that he's being tough on China because what Democrats are going to do in 2024 is they're going to try and co-op populism, like both left populism, but also probably some elements of sort of Trumpian populism. Um, and one of those elements is that they're going to explain trade in a way which has disturbingly racial overtones. <laughs> and they've been starting to do this again. And they've been starting to talk about jobs going overseas and stuff, right? This is all part of a narrative. Um, that's why we have to be like incredibly careful with things like this, because if the government is allowed to decide what apps people download, we have now entered a whole new world. It doesn't mean that they will actually have control over people's phones. Even in North Korea, that's not the case. But in a lot of cases, they will be able to, say, fundamentally compromise our civil liberties just by, say, forcing companies to, you know, put certain types of, you know, access into, you know, backdoors of servers, into their logs, into so on, so on, so on, um, in exchange for being able to be listed on the major app stores, right? That future becomes legally viable, not necessarily will occur, but it becomes legally viable if the US government is able to ban TikTok, right? So though it is silly and ridiculous and based on nothing, the consequences of this are potentially really profound, right? And that's why, you know, I could care less about TikTok. I never use TikTok personally. Um, but we all really need to be doing whatever we can to like, prevent the U.S. government from claiming the power to determine what apps people can run on their devices, um, because that is a very dangerous world. And whether or not we care about TikTok, this is the beginning, potentially, of setting precedent for something like that. Well, I guess the other major question is, like, will this create some sort of Zoomer insurgency on the Hell internet? yeah! K-pop army all day. Yeah, no, seriously, like, you know, there's always the joke of if, you know, Facebook went down, Americans would riot. Like, that would be the thing that would cause the rev to happen, <laughs> would be like Facebook going down. I think that there actually is not a non-zero chance that this has you know, somewhat significant political outcome, like political impacts. Um, I think there's a problem, though, with that. And this is a problem that, you know, I've talked a lot about being from the part of the country I'm from, um, who are Zoomers going to vote for, right? So like if Democrats are trying to get Zoomers to vote for them and Zoomers won't vote for them because the Democrats ban TikTok, it's not like they're going to vote for Republicans, a lot of them, most of them, right? So what happens then? And I think that that's a really great question. A lot of it is going to have to do with what political conditions going forward look like that could manifest as, you know, a bunch of Zoomers learning internet security stuff and figuring out how to bypass controls like this and, you know, doing the hacker thing, like really just, you know, getting online and working on ways to bypass controls and then popularizing those methods. Like that's one you know, possible outcome. That's what happened with when the U.S. government tried to shut down Napster. What happened was BitTorrents and then Pirate Bay right? Which was a direct response to that, right? So that's probably going to be one of the outcomes. Someone will just make a clone of TikTok, right? Like, 
whatever. And it could be that there's just a lot of Zoomers that just are, you know, increasingly convinced that none of these old people that don't understand the internet care about them. And that might, I mean, could lead to increasing sort of lack of legitimacy in the political system overall, but maybe leads to just, you know, disempowerment. I don't know. Um, I really do hope that we are at the point, though, where the U.S. government doing something like controlling what software people could run would generate a relatively severe blowback because it is a really important question. It's important on the level of the government banning books, right? Um, It's important on the level of the government controlling the media. Um, And we have to think about it that way. Well, let's switch to our next topic. Speaking of the government controlling things. So there's a new wave of legislation (laughs) about child labor. Uh, Seems the rich and powerful are just fascinated with children as of late and never in a good way. Uh, Here's an article on Axios. It says legislators in multiple states are invoking widespread, a widespread labor shortage to push bills that would weaken long-standing child labor laws. Some bills go beyond expanding eligibility or working hours for run-of-the-mill teen jobs. They make it easier for kids to fill physically demanding roles at potentially hazardous work sites. What are these bills doing? In Arkansas, our favorite Sarah Huckabee Sanders (laughs) is trying to make it easier for teens as young as 14 to work without obtaining a permit. Uh, Some are... Uh, trying to extend the amount of hours a teen can work. So like even up to like 50 hours a week in some instances, here's one thing that really stands out to me in Iowa. Republican lawmakers are trying to allow 14 to 15 year olds to work in uh, industrial laundry services and freezers at meat packing plants. It also would prevent them from receiving workers' comp or workers' compensation if they are sickened, injured, or killed on the job. And to me, that's like a massive red flag. You know, as we were saying before we started recording, I mean, we both had jobs when we were young and in high school. And, uh, you know, I definitely wanted the money and, you know, wanted to do stuff with that money and start my life. It's not like an ethical position against children, quote, working. But I feel like as you know, we look at this, this is about two things. This is about allowing the people that run the society, the ruling class and the wealthy to basically circumvent this uh, situation that's been created in which you know we've been talking about for a while on this podcast in which people are basically refusing to work a lot of different types of jobs and going for jobs that are actually offering more money and you know are better and they're trying to essentially create another section of the labor force that can undercut that but that is also willing to do a lot of these jobs for less pay and accept uh, slashes on benefits and do work that's potentially hazardous you know one of the great things about hiring kids And this is why we have child labor laws to begin with in this country is that you can make them do a lot of really crappy, shitty work. Charles Dickens, right? Like Charles Dickens novels. That's what happens when child labor is a generalized thing. You know, as you were saying, like both of us had jobs when we were young. Like I got my first job when I was 12, right? Which in, again, the parts of the country I live in is not entirely unheard of. Um, 
it's a thing that's that's been a reality for a long time and you know with a lot of families it's it's a necessity and so um there were some really great elements of that right it really taught me how to be responsible and be on a schedule manage money and like all these things but there's a bigger question here which is is that what we should be teaching children to do right should we be teaching children to be employees um i'm a great employee now wonderful like i you know i know when to push back on on a boss i know when not to like um because i've just been i've been working for you know 28 years like i've just been working for most of my life at this point um and that makes me a great employee but just kind of like the university system changing into becoming mostly about training for jobs is that a good thing right and so we have this first initial question here which you know is should we be sort of engaging with young children uh and and teaching them how to be good workers right not good members of the community or you know people who are willing to pick up tasks or something but workers like in the capitalist employment sense like is that a thing that we should be teaching kids to do but then there's this other question of social impact. Um, you brought up one side of that already, which is the economics of this, right? Um, one of the reasons why workers have been able to demand higher wages, better benefits, so on, so on, is because uh, there's fewer people willing to take crappy jobs. Um, that, though uncoordinated, sort of mass push away from crappy jobs really had a profound economic out outcome, like huge, massive economic outcome. Um, one of the side effects of that, however, though, has been that capitalists have been having to look for cheaper pools of labor, right? Or increase prices. Um, they're starting to see that if they increase prices further, people are going to buy less stuff. Right, like we're at that point in inflation where if things get more expensive, people will buy less stuff um, monetarily. Like they will start saving money with anticipation that things are going to get worse later. Um, so, in order to avoid having to raise prices, they have to cut costs, and the only way that they can reasonably do that is either to cut supply costs, which would mean that up the supply chain, labor costs would have to get cut or they have to cut labor costs at the point of production. And so one really great way to lower labor costs is to flood the labor market with unemployed people. And, you know, they could have say emptied prisons out and it would have had a similar effect. It would have driven wages down. It would have driven benefits down. So on, or well, they keep could in have mind, said kids could do well, this. Well, right? keep in mind, they don't even have to, you know, empty the prisons out per se. Right. They just contract the work into prisons. You know, one of the exactly. most interesting things that, that I found during the prison strike when we were covering it was that they were literally taking jobs that before union workers were working and then they were contracting those out to mm -hmm. prisons. So, for mm -hmm. instance, like I think one of the, uh, the industries like AT&T. Like that had been done by a unionized workforce before. Yeah. And then they took that. Those jobs were basically, you know, totally slashed. Mm -hmm. And then that same work was then given to prisoners. So it's, it's, yeah. it's 
very similar to this, where it's like you have a workforce that's making a good wage. They have benefits. Um, you know, they have a contract. They have a union representative. And then that gets slashed and they take all that work and then move it over to folks that are literally making cents on the hour. What does that mean for the corporate bottom line? Well, that's mm-hmm. a huge amount of money they're getting. Well, it's an easily exploitable workforce right now because because of inflation, because people's wages went up, but not you know according to cost of living, because cost of living has gone up much more. Um, people are at a point in which they're going to send their kids to work, right? I mean, the reason child labor functioned to begin with was capitalists wanted an incredibly low cost pool of labor and families were so impoverished that they had to send their kids to work, that it was a form of economic coercion that led them to sending their kids to work, right? And what was the result of that? Well, a lot of those kids died, right? I mean, again, Charles Dickens novels, right? Like, there are always these horrible kind of side stories in those novels about kids starving on the streets or getting their arms ripped off or so on, so on, so on in the factories. And, and that, that happened constantly. Um, kids would get injured and killed constantly in factories, right? Now, safety regulations have changed and so on. But the point is, is that they were disposable labor, right? Like they functioned as disposable labor. And parents were so desperate for money that they were willing to put their children in a situation where they were disposable labor. Um, The other side effect of that is that many, many, many kids dropped out of school. They had a job in a factory. Why finish high school? Why even finish eighth or ninth grade? Right. And so there have been regulations which have sort of forced the age in which people can drop out of school up uh, where I live at 16 now. But if this were to change, I mean, we're not talking about kids having summer jobs here. We are talking about kids working during the school year. Yeah, The next yeah. thing that'll change is going to be the dropout age. And they're going to lower that so younger and younger kids can start working. Well, I think this also begs the question of like whose kids are actually going to be working. There, there's an article that came out last year uh, where it found that Hyundai, a subsidiary of them, so some plant that was making uh, Hyundai parts or Hyundai cars, found out that they were using child labor at their factory. The kids that were there were Guatemalan migrant children mm-hmm. who had disappeared from their families. Yeah. Uh, here's one article. It says, Reuters learned of underage workers at the Hyundai-owned supplier following a brief disappearance in February of a Guatemalan migrant child from her family's home in Alabama. The girl who turns out to be 14 this month and her two brothers, this was written last year, aged 12 and 15, all worked at the plant. So they were all working there. A child is aged as young as 12 years old, all worked at this plant earlier this year and weren't going to school. According to people familiar with their employment, their their father confirmed these people's account in an interview with Reuters. Again, this isn't like you know, somebody skipping home from school and then like going off to like do a couple hours at the local McDonald's. I mean, these are kids doing literally adult jobs, even in factories. And I think again, like this idea of creating this sort of underclass Mm -hmm. of, of worker. I mean, that's always been a huge part of the American economy. I mean, look at, you know, migrant workers in the United States 
everything from the Bracero program, you know, the history of slavery that was used, you know, to create massive amounts of wealth. I mean, that, you know, the fact that everything rests on stolen land, there's this huge component of American capitalism that thrives off of, you know, a subservient, you know, second tier Mm -hmm. or just underclass of workers. And I think another thing too, that I think a lot of capitalists are probably thinking about is they're thinking about the pandemic. They're thinking about supply chains and like, you know, what are we looking at? We're talking about kids working in factories for car parts. We're talking about meatpacking. I mean, these are some of the key industries that were hit by some of these things that were disrupted by supply chains that, that are, often uh, hit by waves of outbreaks and like workers will have to, you know, go off sick, which disrupts the flow of commodities and capital and stuff like that. I think a lot of employers look at kids as like, oh, they don't get as sick as like adults. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're more sturdy, you know, they'll be able to weather the storm a lot easier than, you know, maybe like a 45 year old worker. That they think this is probably the, the way of the future in many ways. And I think also, too, for those of us that are older, what does that mean for us? Like, I don't have mm-hmm. plans to go work in a Hyundai factory anytime soon. But again, like, if the rest of us also are competing with, you know, this new uh, section of the workforce, which is designed to bring down wages. And we say this, I think, probably every episode. Corporations are making record profits. So it's not like we're sitting in a situation where if you know 12-year-old kids don't start working at insurance companies, that the entire economy is going to crash. Like That's not what we're looking at at all. We're looking at a situation in which corporations which are making record profits in a time of you know unprecedented economic stratification are trying to create conditions to do that more. And to do that, they want to commodify our kids, <laughs> right? I mean, like it's, when we think about things in those terms, it becomes a lot different all of a sudden. I mean, you know, we were talking about this with uh, politicians insisting that, you know, people go back to work during the pandemic. And, you know, if some people die, well, that's better than, you know, the economy crashing or something. And how there was there was almost a sort of cannibalistic or vampiric aspect to that, where they're sort of willing to live off the life force of people in order to keep the economy functioning, right? And what are we seeing except that here, right? We are watching a situation in which corporations making record profits are finding trying to find cheaper sources of labor that are more compliant. Right, right immediately after a moment in time in which workers were able to claw back just a bit, a very, very small sliver of what they're owed. Right. And so this isn't, this pushback is sure, it's about cheap labor, but it's also about breaking the power that workers accumulated during the pandemic. I mean, like that is a major element of this because it's, again, not about profit. I mean, they can eke out a little bit more money but they're already making record profits. It's not about that. It's about shifting the dynamic of the labor market. Right now, currently, as employees, we have advantage in the labor market. We can you know, make demands, and especially in certain industries, we, we can kind of make demands, right? And that's because there's a shortage of labor. But again, once they flood the labor market, 
that shifts and employers end up with the advantage now that we end up needing to comply with their terms for work. That is essential for capitalists to continue to exploit us to make money, right? But it's also a horrendous cannibalistic way to live. And things like this or things like telling people that it's okay to die for the, for the economy during the pandemic are, are clear examples of how capitalism is, is eating itself and killing us in the process. To push children into these roles while their entire political brand is based around pushing far-right conspiracies about groomers and you know this omnipresent threat to re- threat to children or you know democrats are drinking kids blood to get omnicron and stuff like that i mean <laughs> you know you know you mentioned the vampire thing it's like who are the real vampires who's really grooming your children for you know, sucking life force out of them, you know, it's coming from one place and it's not these, uh, you know, batshit conspiracy theories and it's not, it's not drag performers. Mm -mm. Well, and if you, if you really look at what's happening here, you know, I've talked about universities a number of times and how, you know, business people have taken over the boards of universities. This happened in the 1990s. And ever since that period of time, universities have run like corporations, Right. And one of the results of that is that they're profit motivated. Profit comes from donors. Donors are wealthy. And so the rich get to control what happens at most universities, right? And of course, they're shaping those universities in their interest. Uh, Namely, they're turning them into job training sites. It gets them employees they don't have to pay to train, right? It's essentially a free public subsidy to all these big companies. Um, But then we look at, say, we start to think about a similar technique that's getting used specifically by conservatives around the U.S., specifically in Florida, around really trying to shape what kids are able to learn, right? Not in like a, you know, you need to talk about this way, but in a you cannot talk about these other things kind of way, right? That it's not laying out, you know, like conservatives want to say that this is the same as every any educational requirement, but it's not. Right. An educational requirement in most states is stated, you know, as a thing that you must cover, not as a thing that you can't cover. Right. A thing that you can't cover is censorship. Right. And so what you're seeing in a place like Florida right now is you're seeing, you know, schools being used to indoctrinate children into far right politics. You're seeing that sort of happen on a broader societal scale with things like trying to take away the liquor licenses of hotels that have drag shows or trying to shut down bookstores that sell banned books or something like this. And then they're trying to get children to work, (laughs) right? Um, What is that except indoctrination, except turning these kids into compliant workers? I mean, it's a way to limit their ability to have worldviews beyond what we see in front of us, right? It's a way to create a situation in which there's an inability to see anything different or to see that things could change. It creates all these things as not just inevitable, but as the only intellectual horizon that we're capable of thinking because of the way that the school system and education and our childhoods are getting shaped by this process, right? We can't think of these things in isolation. And so again, you know, so much of right-wing politics is about projection. But they constantly talk about how, like, 
left-wing college professors are indoctrinating our kids and banning conservatives, but then they start organizations to ban professors. Or they complain about how you know, liberals are using their control of school boards to indoctrinate children. So they get themselves elected to school boards and then use it to force their politics on everybody, right? It's this kind of absurd act of projection that we're watching happen now in which we're watching this attempt to reshape childhood, to turn it into this site of political inscription, to turn it into this site of the inscription of certain norms of labor, right? That we're watching this process and we're watching Republican politicians say things like, yeah, kids having jobs when they're very young is a great thing, kind of uncritically, right? They'll make them good workers and they're right and it will. And I'm not saying there's no value in that. What I am saying is that it's not the thing that we should be teaching our kids, right? Or it's not the thing that we should be limiting our children to understanding. Um, we've forced open history, again, in the last series of years. And there's a long struggle to get there. I mean, there's a reason that eight-year-old kids aren't working in textile factories in the United States. Um, there was a long fight to get to that to get to that place, to get to a place where, you know, schools could reflect the communities that they were in and that, you know, students could learn things that didn't teach them to be bigoted and hateful. Um, that we've sort of ended up in that space in which um, ch childhood has become this fundamentally political sort of space, but it's being politicized by the same people that are trying to manipulate it, ironically, right? But that hypocrisy shouldn't surprise anybody. I mean, this is the American conservative movement. Um, they thrive on hypocrisy and they thrive on projection and they thrive on finding new populations to be able to target that are easily marginalized in order to be able to support their own power through their own political base, right? All of these things are at play here. And we can't think of them as different from these broader dynamics of things like employment or this attempt to shape childhood that we see coming from the conservative movement. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.